Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and we once again return to 2018 and the series Ode to Joystick. You've reached level three on our short but epic trilogy of adventures in computer games music. As we're about to discover over the next hour, these mechanical melodies have been sneaking out of the consoles and into the concert hall. Let's continue by grabbing our wellies and squelching our way over to a muddy field in Somerset to hear some early gaming tunes with a new coat of orchestral paint. Conductor Charles Hazelwood told me... What would happen if you took that old world and put it actually onto a symphony orchestra, which is like taking those very plastic, very synthesized sounds and giving them kind of technicolor that only an orchestra can provide. So it's almost like what was monochrome in, let's say, the original Sonic the Hedgehog could become full technicolor for the orchestra. The theme there from Sonic the Hedgehog, recorded at the Glastonbury Festival on June the 23rd, 2017. Charles Hazelwood conducting the Army of Generals and the British Para Orchestra. To recap, on the first edition, we looked at the history of gaming technology and how music was dragged kicking and punching to a state of infinite possibilities, with modern gaming machines having the same power as a recording studio. On the second edition, we spoke to a host of composers, conductors and arrangers who have helped create some of the landmark scores for these utopian or dystopian universes. Now, in our end of level final edition, we take a step back and look how the music is escaping from behind the screen and invading the concert stages of the world. We also explore the point where the gaming and record industry meet as this music transfers from the digital realm to analog and vinyl. And finally, we loop back to episode one and hear the Game Boy transformed into a crunchy, chipped, easy to carry live musical tool. It's the time to reveal the Barbican's part in this slow waltz of digital evolution. On the 18th of March 2018, Charles Hazelwood presented play with the Army of Generals and the British Para Orchestra, who you heard just a moment ago recorded at the Glastonbury Festival. He joined me on the phone. My idea with this gig, with this whole prospect of play, is to lure in an audience of people who love their video games, know their video games inside out, backwards and forwards. So we're giving them an opportunity to come and hear a brilliant, red-blooded, high-octane orchestra play that music they know so well, really brilliantly and very alive in front of them. And then at the same time, to take them on a kind of magical mystery tour into some of the music which led to the video game scores that they're so familiar with. So what is it that, for instance, Richard Strauss has to bring to bear on Sonic the Hedgehog? What is it that Gustav Holst and the Planets has to do with Final Fantasy or Tetris or Tchaikovsky with Call of Duty? And so the list goes on. Just to remind people that A, all these worlds interlink, that they are aligned, and B, that actually there's a whole world of intoxicating, new, exciting musical adventure to be had for even the hardcore gamer. 
Could you tell me a little bit about the Army of um, Generals and also the uh, British Para Orchestra? Very special ensembles, I think. They are very special ensembles. These are my two kind of core orchestras. They're both based in Bristol. Army of Generals is a kind of breakneck virtuoso chamber orchestra of able-bodied musicians. And I say that because it's twin orchestra, the British Para Orchestra. is a group I formed in 2012. It's the world's first full-size virtuoso orchestra where all the musicians in it have a disability. Now, a lot of the projects that we do now tend to amalgamate the two orchestras because we want to show beyond any reasonable doubt that there is no reason why you can't be witnessing world-class musical performance where a healthy number of the people on the stage happen to have a disability. We want to bring about fast-scale change. Currently, disabled musicians are chronically overlooked in the music industry. So this is a way of really you know, raising the bar and getting people to think very hard about the issue. So it's a really, really thrilling thing that you're hearing some of the best music making it's possible to imagine with an orchestra which is completely integrated in that way. You performed this project at Glastonbury, which I would have thought this might have connected on some kind of transcendental level. Do you know, it absolutely did. It's so interesting. We've taken two projects, two sort of satellite projects to Glastonbury in recent years. Um, so in 2016, we headlined the park stage with the standalone moment where Glastonbury stopped to celebrate Bowie's legacy. Remember, Bowie died earlier in 2016. And we played Philip Glass's Heroes Symphony. Then a year later, we went in with the play project and met a very different kind of crowd, but equally wrapped crowd of people also drenched inside and too much drum and bass who were doing their nuts to hear, you know, Assassin's Creed or, you know, Mass Effect Suicide Mission or Angry Birds. It was like, this is the, the protein that they've been missing all weekend. I can't tell you how grateful they were. It's brilliant. Let's cross now to Germany and speak to Thomas Becker, who was inspired to embark on a dangerous, perilous journey to bring gaming music into the concert hall. His ultimate trophy, an ongoing collaboration with the London Symphony Orchestra. I started by asking where his symphonic game music concert series began. The whole idea was basically coming from Japan, because when I was a teenager, I read in a game magazine that in Japan they were doing video game music concerts, and I always thought that this was actually quite a fantastic idea, being a gamer myself. And for many years I was waiting and I was hoping that something similar would happen in in Germany or let's say in the West, um, so that I could attend, but nothing happened. So after some time, I decided, okay, if nobody is doing it, then probably I have to do it. And so this is how it started. When did you start touring? What was the next step? Uh, this took actually quite some time. Um, the uh, first tour, actually, we started with Final Symphony in 2013. Final Symphony featured, or is still featuring, the music from the Final Fantasy series. And uh, the world premiere was in, in Germany. But then another big achievement was made when... We came to the Barbican Center in 2013 and the wonderful London Symphony Orchestra performed their first video game music concert ever with Final Symphony. with the London Symphony Orchestra already, which I'm really, really grateful because uh, the London Symphony Orchestra is really very close to my heart. So it it means a lot to me that I'm able to work with them. But the Nobuo Uematsu, the, the main composer of the Final Fantasy series, I think he writes really tuneful music. Uh, all the Final Fantasy soundtracks, especially the early ones, are very very rich of melodies and thanks to the fact that it's Japanese RPG, a role-playing game, there are many, many different themes 
So I would say that like every every stone has its own theme in the in the Final Fantasy series. So you have all these characters, you have all these locations, you have different moods, and this is a, a big pool of of material. And our arrangers can choose from this, and then uh, with all these wonderful melodies, they can basically retell the stories of Final Fantasy musically, and that's really fantastic for the concert hall. Could you talk about the reaction from the audience that you've had? It must have been very, very positive. Yes, absolutely. I remember that I think it was after the Final Symphony concert in in London, one of the musicians wrote on Twitter that this was the most attentive audience he had ever played for. So, And I think that's something really fascinating because uh, during the performances, it's really, really quiet. I would even say that sometimes it's... Uh, more quiet than in classical concerts where there is always coughing. And uh, but the Final Fantasy fans really want to hear every note, every every part of the music. It's really really interesting to see. But after the performance, it's more like in a in a rock music concert and with a lot of big applause and uh, uh, shouting and and and. Uh, it's like a, quite a change from being quiet to being very loud. And I think I learned over the years that the orchestra, of course, appreciates something like that because they feel respected for their work because the whole concept, the whole production, that the orchestras are brave enough to try something new. So I think in the end, everybody is happy about it and everybody uh, feels very fortunate to be part of it. Now back in our time travel machine to October 2016 and to speak to someone I've discovered in the course of this series is a composer's composer, someone who is extremely respected in the game music community and that is Jessica Curry. Back in 2016 I travelled to Brighton and the home of games company The Chinese Room to speak to the composer just before the first performance of Dear Esther at Milton Court Concert Hall at the Barbican in London. I started by asking where her journey in games music writing began. Well, I was dragged into the world of video games very reluctantly by my husband, Dan, who mm-hmm. was writing his PhD on what would happen if you took all gameplay out of a game. And that became Dear Esther. So I was, right, I was a freelance composer at the time, not working in the world of video games at all. Dan asked me to write this music for a very theoretical project, which then turned out to be a massive critical and commercial hit, which then led us into the part of the Chinese room making a computer game company. And so for me, it was just another form of collaboration with him, really. Mm. And I wasn't so bothered about what the medium was. It was more about getting to work with him. I've begun my voyage in a paper boat without a bottom fly to the moon in it. I've been folded along a crease in time, a weakness in the sheet of life. Now you've settled on the opposite side of the paper to me. I can see your traces in the ink that soaks through the fibre, the pulped vegetation. When we become waterlogged and the cage disintegrates, we will intermingle. When this paper aeroplane leaves the cliff edge and carves parallel vapour trails in the dark, we will come together. Let's talk about the world. I mean, how, how would you describe it? Bleak. <laughs> Desolate. Lonely. Grief-laden. Um, it is, without wanting to sound too pretentious, it, it really is like a psychogeographical journey. It, it, it's a journey of the mind. So it's set on a remote Hebridean island, but actually it's about the player's experience mm. as they find out what happened in this story. And it's kind of half ghost story. It's about hidden secrets and just a man's thinking about his life and what he's done and what's happened to him. So it, it was very new at the time for video games to explore such deep themes actually and I think that's why it got such the massive response that it did at the time because no one else was doing it really How 
how on earth do you take something which is a, a single person experience and, and turn it into a, a shared experience? I got in touch with Chris Sharp and because there's quite a lot of snobbery about game music, especially in classical London, I thought he was going to go go away mad woman but he was so sweet and accepting and curious after I'd pitched this idea and he'd said yes I thought well how am I actually going to pull this off just in terms of how the conductor who doesn't know the game is going to cue the musicians in is going to cue the actor in he needs to be cued somehow Mm. how's that going to happen So we've been working with uh, Curve, who are our publishers. They've had to make us a completely new build of the game that has those trigger cue points sort of visualised so the conductor will be looking at the monitor saying, OK, now it's cue four. Mm. Because, of course, Dan, my husband, is going to play the game live on stage. So this is what's different about it. It's not like a film score where you think, well, I know this happens at this point. Dan could also choose to go anywhere in the game at any point. So that's really scary for the conductor. (laughs) But it hasn't really been done before. Um, Austin Wintry's doing it in America with Journey, but it's quite different to this. So Mm. we are at the sort of vanguard of live game performances. And of course, game music is being performed around the world, but not with a live playthrough of the game. So that's the challenge. Mm. And it's one of those evenings where you go... I was there. And this probably, it'll be repeated, but it'll never be quite the same as this. It's one of those unique moments where, together with the rest of the audience, it doesn't happen every time you go and see something live, but sometimes, I've had it at the proms as well, where there is a collective feeling from the audience where you exchange a look Mm. and go, I was here. And that's what I hope this concert is going to be, one of those really special nights for people. I mean, I have to say, I didn't ask my husband, Dan, who is going to be playing the game on stage I just pitched it to the barbican without asking him and then about a month ago I went Dan how do you feel about being in front of about 650 people playing the game live on stage oh yes and there'll be some musicians and there'll be a narrator as well and um, he gave me one of those looks that only married couples can give each other of what have you done to me I love you but at this moment I could cheerfully strangle you so, because that's a really big responsibility for yeah, him. Yeah. He is the the author of the evening, really. Yeah. Um, so, no pressure, Dan. We'll see how it goes. As an audience member at that concert, I can attest the mixture of live gameplay, narration, and music was something I'd never experienced before. It felt new and different. Dear Esther went on to be performed many more times across the country. We haven't quite finished with Jessica Curry's music. Next, we speak to Lisa Roberts from the Peterborough Music Hub about why she's teaming up with the Britain Symphonia and Jessica Curry to bring games music to a new generation. I go to my best friend's house every Wednesday and we play computer games. And he said to me, I've got this uh, new computer game called um, Everybody's Gone to Rapture. I was absolutely captivated with it. It was probably one of the most beautiful games I've played in absolutely ages. But what I really was struck by was the the score, the composition sitting with the game and how beautiful it was. That kind of led me to thinking about how we could bring this to life, really. So I'm the manager of the Peterborough Music Hub, and one of our um, ambitions is about musical excellence and opportunity for young people to see what different pathways they can take into music. And we haven't done a lot on composing, and particularly female composers. And Jessica Curry's score was really held with me and I really wanted to do a project but I wanted to do a project with a computer game as well so I started thinking about how we could incorporate the music from the game but also the game so we talked to um, Britain Symphonia who are local to us so we're in Peterborough and they're in Cambridge and um, we devised this project Britain Symphonia would take the score and they would perform it, the um, choir as well. But we would also train up young musicians from Peterborough and that they would play alongside professionals during a concert. 
and to give the concert more atmosphere and really give it that gamer feel we're going to have the game being played in the background from morning to dusk because one of the beautiful things about this game is that you are walking during the daytime and then you can go into the evening and then you can go into the night where the stars are lighting up the sky and I wanted to get people into that kind of immersive environment. I think the computer game aspect of it has really engaged an audience that wouldn't have engaged with more um, traditional classical music because the score is very haunting and um, very classical orientated but when set with the game has given particularly young people an in to, to the genre rather than it feeling that it's not for them it's given them an idea that actually it's linked to something they do very often in, in their own homes and through their own leisure time Okay, some more examples of this live game music phenomena. Picture the scene. One day, not too long ago, the head of audio at Sony PlayStation in London, Alastair Lindsay, received a call from James Williams, the managing director of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. James told Alastair, We've booked the Royal Albert Hall for the 30th of May 2018. We're doing a video game music concert. Can you help us? (laughs) So I was like, yeah, yeah, come in. So we we had a, a good long chat and and just decided like okay how proposed to him would you be happy for this just to be a concert of playstation music and actually music that is primarily all playstation and sony interactive entertainments titles that we've published we knew that there was a good amount in the catalog and then we talked about a creative for this it was like okay we're kind of coming almost coming up to 25 years of playstation i think next year so uh and it will kind of give a bit of a journey of how music Mm. that we've done on the playstation has sort of shaped and changed but also we really decided to just make it a pure concert so there's no backing tracks there's no click there's no there's no visuals Mm. it's I around about 80 piece orchestra and a choir in the second half. Royal Philharmonic Orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall. It was just like, we have to be involved in this. So, so it's, it's the Philharmonic's concert, but we're kind of supporting them with our music and, and we're creating. So it's really exciting. But yeah, it's definitely been a challenge because you, they do a lot of film music concerts. Uh, but this has definitely been however many cues, however many games is definitely a bigger job than we thought it would be but I think once it's done it's going to be pretty amazing More from Alistair in just a moment Now to Chris Abbott the creator of C64 Audio who has been a champion of the lost and neglected tunes of the Commodore 64 since 1997 He told me why these composers mattered and his ambitious journey to bring these tunes to the concert hall No one got into this music to become rich or famous. They got into it because they were interested and because it spoke to something they needed to do musically. Like a composer, Richard Joseph, had a a previous career as a rock star and writing music for ATV. Rob Hubbard had done gigging all across uh, across Europe. Martin Galway, his nephew, is James Galway, the famous flutist. Wow. Uh, And so there's a kind of musical background in the family. But his stuff was much more mathematical. His stuff was not being anything other than itself. And etc. Or uh, every composer had a backstory where they were they were bringing in other musical influences uh, until eventually the, com- the the later composers essentially their main inspiration was earlier composers on the Commodore 64. At which point you got a kind of feeding off itself and a kind of mm. a, a, a less new ideas coming in. Let's move on to your very ambitious uh, sort of project and idea of taking a lot of these themes that you've been talking about um, on the Commodore 64 and and hiring the London Symphony Orchestra and putting on a concert. We started, this started off with a Kickstarter in 2015. Uh, there'd previously been a CD which addressed the issue by doing three or four orchestral mock-ups. Um, so that was to try and get the scores and uh, the, the, the brief was to make it so that it could be played by a real orchestra. But uh, it's not just an exercise in taking a chip tune and just making a, a thing out of it. Um, it's, a, it's trying to get to the soul of the piece, releasing with the composer and doing it justice. If, if it was supposed to be a big sci-fi epic, make it sound like John Williams. If it's supposed to be a quiet rural piece, make it sound like Grieg. 
Conductor and composer Ima Noon told me it's not just the composers performing their music, the fans are also doing it for themselves. There's an amazing movement of people making their own arrangements of famous video game themes. It's just, it's a huge amount of people. There's a a festival on the East Coast in the US uh, called MAGFest. There's something like 15,000 people show up and uh, for, I don't even think they, they have any orchestral stuff, but they have so many bands, like rock bands, synth bands, classical ensembles, string quartets, woodwind uh, ensembles, people writing their own arrangements of video game music and performing it. And it's it's actually kind of massive. It's really weird as a composer to hear one of your pieces being arranged and performed. I mean, it's so weird and exhilarating and humbling and amazing. But to hear other people doing their own versions of it is just, and, and it's it's a thing. It's like, it's not just when you see rock songs and pop songs. Sure, there are cover versions out there, but this is this whole festival and this whole movement. There's something called OC Remix online. It's a huge, huge, a huge site where people do all these remixes of things. And there's some really, really good ones out there. A few more concert series to mention. Let's cast our net a little wider and speak to a few composers who appeared in our second podcast and are bringing computer game scores to Europe in the near future. Let's return to Penka Kaneva, who is bringing gaming music to Bulgaria. That's something I'm really excited about because I believe with all of my heart and soul that the game music is the music of 21st century. Not only that, but the game music is that continuation of the grand tradition that we so love. I grew up in Bulgaria and my mom started taking me to orchestral concerts as a very young child and I just loved it so much. That's such a beautiful, of course these were all classical concerts. Next week on March 14th, 2018 I have the greatest honor to have co-organized and co-produced a big orchestral concert of video game music in Sofia. Um, So we approached this whole concert with the idea, okay, let's bring the best orchestral music into the classical concert hall and really show how this music is the continuation. This music revitalizes the tradition. We're going to present music uh, from five Blizzard games, their their biggest titles. We're going to present Uncharted 2, Mario, uh, composed by Grant Kirkhope, who's a British composer, and uh, we're going to have um, Jessica Curry, another fantastic British composer. We're going to have three selections from her game, um, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, and uh, more selections from my game music, um, Jack Wall with Black Ops 3, Call of Duty. So it's just really trying to um, feature games that are the best orchestral games, blockbuster games, and also uh, these are all very popular in Bulgaria. So we expect a sold-out concert, and, um, and it's it's a dream come true for me, and I'm really happy that we could organize this wonderful concert where we bring game music into the classical space. Composer Jesper Kidd. To see and to hear all that music played in, in concert halls, and there really has been a, a, an increased interest in, in, in having music out uh, in, in, in these, you know, concert halls. And that's, that's just super exciting, you know. We're, um, you know, planning, I think, three or four concerts this year. Um, and, you know, I'll be uh, in Krakow as well, the, the, the world's biggest film and TV music, you know, festival. Um, and it's going to be played in an arena there. Uh, it's, it's, it's really awesome that there's that much, you know, love for this, for this music. I think it also, it it really does make a lot of sense, you know, because people spend so long inside these video games, you know, they can play a game for 20 hours, they can even play for 100 hours. And to go out into an opera house and to hear that music that you know so well and hear a new live version of that music.
we now leave the concert hall and arenas and we focus on the maybe more straightforward idea of placing music into games or syncing as it's known. It seems the addition in a driving game of a radio in a car or similar such devices allowed an incredible influx of diverse artists from every genre into the gaming world. One of the people who has grown up with and helped shape this part of the industry is Sergio Pimentel, senior creative in the sync department at Ninja Tune and Just Isn't Music Publishing. Could you talk about some of those big games where music became more interconnected? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I was um, I was lucky enough to work on Guitar Hero uh, while I was over at Activision Blizzard uh, many moons ago now. And yeah, there, there were a number of those. I, I think sort of Grand Theft Auto, the Grand Theft Auto 3, the first 3D game, was the one that had the really extensive radio stations. Mm. And, um, and I remember at the time, you know, the, the, the guys over at Rockstar going to the music industry and, and essentially approaching them with a big pot of cash and saying, look, you know, this is all for you guys. We'd like 100 tracks. We've got 10 different stations and what have you. So I guess it was around that time that music really became a, a real enhancer of the gameplay mm. and the experience. Strangely enough, at around that time, I was um, working at PlayStation, uh, working on a, on a game franchise of ours that we had called The Getaway. It was kind of a lock stock, two smoking barrels. Mm-hmm. For all intents and purposes, similar kind of gameplay something like Grand Theft Auto, mission-based, hopping into cars, you know, running around. Uh, We had a score done, and the idea was, let's get a sort of David Axelrod, Lalo Schifrin-type score, kind of really gritty, kind of jazzy, slightly orchestral in parts, the the kind of thing that either of those composers would have scored one of the great films of, Mm. of, of, of that kind of style that they did. So we created this kind of score, this very gritty score for the cinematics in the cutscenes in the game but then we thought you know when the player's actually playing in the game we'd like something a bit grittier so we'd like something like hip-hop a little bit like these guys would sample those great scores but we thought okay well we need to first create our score we can't just have them sampling anything and as it turned out we thought you know we want a very cool credible london-based label to partner up with Hopefully it's got some great hip hop in there. And, you know, as it turned out, the game set in London and was recreated photorealistically, 40 square kilometres of central London. And as it turned out, a first label that came to our mind was Ninja Tune, you know, with (laughs) with Big Dada and the sub-labels. And as it turned out, they were actually in the corner of the map in the game. So we thought, this is fantastic. So we we contacted Ninja and um, ended up getting four of their artists, producers, to, to kind of remix, if you like, four of the themes from the game. There were three main characters in the game, so each of those had a, a theme. And then there was the intro-outro theme. So um, we had uh, Amon Tobin, who remixed uh, the intro-outro theme and just totally flipped it on its head. It was amazing. Uh, we worked with Diplo, whose first album Ninja put out, and also uh, Low Tech Hi-Fi and Blockhead as well. And so they then created this very kind of gritty score that then underlaid the gameplay and the game engine would then trigger the stems of that mix depending on what the player was doing. And I presume you didn't have any problem convincing those artists because they were probably gamers themselves. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, uh, you know, you're working with artists that are touring on tour buses all the time. uh, And, you know, they've got a lot of time on their hands when they are touring. So, yeah, often, uh, often they are gamers.
And from a label's point of view, this this is an incredible way of getting the music to people who would never be exposed. Yes, no, absolutely. And um, and I guess I've got a fairly good anecdote about that. So I have a I have a 13 year old son who who, as it's turned out, has turned into a big gamer. Fun, <laughs> funny that with, with with the PlayStation at the house, and he's playing online a lot at the moment. And I wandered in three or four months ago from work. I could hear him online with his headset on, speaking to all of his mates, and they were playing a an extreme sports kind of realistic title that Ubisoft put out in the last year or so, year and a half or so, called Steep. As it turns out, we ended up getting quite a few Ninja Tune tracks on on the score. Anyway, I could hear them playing, and uh, one of his friends, you know, can hear them all speak. He's like, yeah, um, what's that song? You have a beautiful piano and a beautiful vocal on it. My son, who's 13, with his 13-year-old friend, said, uh, oh, that's uh, the cinematic orchestra to build a home. And, and start, oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I'm sitting there in the other room in my study getting some work done thinking, there's a bunch of 13-year-olds now who are all listening to kind of quite contemporary hip-hop. And they're talking about this beautiful piano-driven track with this beautiful vocal on it. And it's to build a home. Anyway, I went into the office the next day and I said, guys, you won't believe it. This is kind of the best focus group I could ever... And, you know, they were like, oh, yes, I, I, I think that I think my dad works for the label, you know. Oh, it's such a beautiful track. So, wow. <laughs> there you go. So many games have got so cinematic that, you know, they are like films, you know, you're getting pieces of music that are helping a narrative in some way and, and a piece of music from any genre from anywhere can, can help a story along. There really are no holds barred nowadays. I, I think you could pick any track on Ninja Tune and you would be able to say something about it is in some way derived from those possibly nostalgic sounds that we grew up in, you know, going back to Nintendos or going back to arcade games. Yeah, of course. I mean, I guess the the, the one artist within the within the, the Ninja family stable uh, that's on, on one of the, the, the labels that we distribute, Brain Feeder, you know, Thundercat, mm. is a huge video game fan. So I think, you know... There's a lot of his music that is influenced by, by his love of video games, um, certainly some of the imagery that you see in you know, some of the, the videos and stuff. So, yeah, I, th I think so. I think particularly in the electronic world, you, you tend to be able to see that connection a little bit more. Because I'd rather play Mortal Kombat anyway. Hey, I'm all about my Johnny Cage. If you're not bringing titles, I suggest you start to walk We returned to Alastair Lindsay and I asked him, is there the sense that every new game has to push on the envelope in some way, shape or form? One of the remits for us being uh, essentially working for a platform holder is we're always working with new sort of peripherals, technology, always working on when there's a new console. Uh, so the latest thing as of uh, a couple of years ago was the PlayStation VR. The VR was an interesting initial three years of our first title it took us to actually to finish and a lot of that was what is vr what is what is audio what is sound in vr and um uh, vr worlds which is our first playstation vr title and that was a, a kind of a compilation of half a dozen experiences should i say all different so it had it was a challenge because there's lots of different styles of music from orchestral to electronic to uh, and, but what we did there because that was actually as I said earlier discovering and how, what is music in VR how do we do this uh, we, we looked a lot of techniques and ideas so there's one of the experiences uh, Ocean's Descent where you go down in a shark hit 
it's crazy. It's very kind of ambient experience, but we even uh, had elements of sort of generative music where, where depending where you looked, it would trigger tonal elements and, and really kind of, there's not the music there, but you're building that music up. So it's very, it was very technical, a lot of the, the implementation. And it, it really worked. We felt it really worked for our first sort of title in, in VR. It's obviously important that you can hear the computer game's music, and thanks to Bandcamp, Spotify, iTunes and YouTube, you can get easy access to most of what has been written. There is, though, some labels who specialise in vinyl releases of some of these scores. To learn more, I caught up with Thomas Quillfeld, freelance writer and community and blog manager for Laced Records. Uh, with Laced Records, we've put out what is essentially an electronica collection with Hotline Miami collector's edition vinyl um, it's all underground kind of independent electronica and it sounds very completely different in terms of genre or instrumentation to uh, final symphony which is uh, recorded at abbey road with the london symphony orchestra these full lush uh, orchestral versions are that happened to draw on the music of uh, nobu Uematsu in the final fantasy series So I think most labels who go to the trouble of putting out vinyl releases would say it ring, definitely rings true for Laced Records. Um, the music comes first, so uh, Laced works with the best mastering engineers for the job who um, have quite a job to do in some cases because there are some video game soundtracks that are created by a single composer who has all of access to the original music files, unmastered music files, and they send it to Lace to send it to the mastering engineer who, in the case of vinyl, you've got to check things like um, there isn't too much stereo in the bass and certain high-end frequencies might um, prove a problem for the vinyl manufacturers. But some other of uh, Laced's soundtracks that we're putting out, like Ruiner or Hotline Miami, are collections um, from quite diverse electronica artists who may not have access to their original files. So there's quite a job of, to do of sort of digging out the best possible source uh, of the music. And then with the packaging, it kind of depends on the relationship between Laced and the, and the developer and the publisher. It's just a case of extreme attention to detail with all of these packages because, of course, when someone drops whatever it is, $50 or something, plus shipping or, or, or less or more on, on these products, and they get it and they've got this big, you know, physical package in front of them, they're going to see every detail and they are um, they're going to judge their happiness with it on the attention to detail and sort of the overall presentation. So it's absolutely crucial to get those things right. Laced Records has, has built itself a nice little reputation, uh, we'd like to think. There's just so many soundtracks, just in sheer volume. Um, there aren't enough kind of labels to release all of it. There's a, a rich seam of, of classic video games um, that, that haven't seen kind of official releases and it's probably only a matter of time before one label or another is able to unlock those licenses and, and sort of build up a relationship with those uh, the bigger kind of game publishers and on the, hand, on the other hand there are still you know giant video game um, phenomenon to come Pokemon Go came out of nowhere Player Unknown's Battlegrounds came out of nowhere whatever the next thing might have a soundtrack that that really hits a popular imagination and uh, and whichever label gets there first will will see some significant success. So, and also work with games that aren't yet released, uh, which has been a, a sort of exciting side thing for or, or one of the strands that Laced follows is to get involved really early with a game before it's released and then work with the composer to kind of have a release that, that, that comes out at the same time as the game. Um, just in the last day or two, um, an indie game called uh, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine uh, has just dropped and, uh, and we were able to announce the vinyl on the same day as as a wellspring of 
just absolutely brilliant music, very talented individual composers and artists. It's just a very lush garden at the moment that's producing a lot of uh, artistically valuable material. The label Arrays Tapes are home to an incredible roster of post-classical artists, such as A Winged Victory for the Sullen and Nils Fram. In 2017, they released Ben Lucas Boyson and Sebastian Plano's score to David O'Reilly's interactive game Everything. The release of the score was not a surprise to label founder Robert Raths. It was logical, even an essential decision. When I take on a project, I just literally have to feel like I can't do otherwise you know like that that's mostly my gut instinct uh, is that decision where I kind of feel like I can't get out of bed the next day without being involved in that project <laughs> but then when I he- heard the music and when I kind of immersed myself in the near four hours of, of sound um, I challenged myself first of all staying awake listening through all that material and I did fall asleep I think three times and then eventually I, that became a challenge that I just really enjoyed to kind of to actually find that happy balance where you kind of um, curate 40 minute one play like a, a long player gives the the music as a whole justice. Of course, it would only be a snapshot of at that point I was completely uh, committed and lost in the project and obviously found space for it. As soon as I read the script and the concept of the game, I actually really felt that it, like David was one of us. You know, the way he he looks at the world, the way he wants to create something that is inspiring, that is open and universally speaking, and it doesn't create like an elite a game community versus the people that have no clue or something like that. It's not about scoring. It's not mm-hmm. about achieving anything. Uh, particular it's it's really about exploration and we had so many emails of people who had no idea that it was the music for a game and then just by holding the sleeve in their hands and kind of reading it up looking up online they they would find out about this game Um, or like in the first edition we actually had a, a free download code for the for the game included which was kindly provided by David and he was really excited about that element and we were we were talking about that a lot, like how we want to bring two worlds together. Again, just like the, the game itself is all about exploration to actually en- enable people to explore in the real world as well. One last post-classical moment on this podcast. We couldn't turn down an invitation to legendary Air Studios in Hampstead and a chance to hook up with composer and orchestral session cellist Peter Gregson. He spoke to me about his score and the composition process for the cello and synth-based score to Game Boundless. Just the scope and the scale of of scoring a game, working on a game, is just a totally different beast. I mean, it doesn't doesn't have a comparison. You know, it's... um, I was saying before we started recording this, I think there's about 12 and a half hours of music in this game. Off the top of my head, the average track length is about four minutes, three and a half, four minutes long. So they're sort of album tracks. We we came up with 64 things, 64 things that could happen and places they could happen. There are four different flavours and then it was about creating different, sort of almost like different albums. So there's sort of four different albums worth of... Right of styles, mm. so there are ambient mixes, uh, acoustic mixes, all, all with discrete instrumentation and, and things.
thought I'd go back quickly to um, Air Studios, where we are at the moment. Mm. This incredible, legendary uh, building and recording studio, a, a converted church. I'm kind of interested to sort of maybe talk about how the fact that that is commonplace now, that your thoughts on the blurring of boundaries between, you know, again, go back to sort of classical and computer game music and, and film music. And I guess... You know, certainly the you know the gate the um, in between player moments where they're sort of yeah. establishing scenes and things they are like films. I mean, they are films. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's incredible. And games seem to be just going for it. And now they've got seemingly no limitation on storage size. So you know, they have these hugely elaborate graphics capabilities, hugely elaborate sonic capabilities. Mm. There are very, very few things that really challenge the kind of epic nature of a full symphony orchestra. So much so good number of these big big games don't just stop with a full-size symphony orchestra they augment it <laughs> so it gets bigger and bigger and bigger you know so um you, you see some of the like the brass sessions like triple quadruple brass i think like, and they don't they can't do it all at once they have to do it in various sessions because the space is, is limited you know so it's it is i think at that kind of triple a level where it is like more is more mm. simply yeah, I mean, you're playing on those as a cellist, they they are quite slow sessions. Uh, the ones I've played yeah. on have all been broken down into very, very small chunks. Do four bars, you stop. Do four bars, you stop. Oh, really? And, um, yeah, and then they sort of checkerboard it so that the reverb tail is consistent and, and all this stuff so that when it loops, you don't hear it. And it's, oh, yeah. it's really clever. I mean, it's super clever. With Boundless, the, the game, uh, we're just very fortunate that music was a high priority in, in the game storytelling and that the, the studio who've produced it continue to value the music as a, a part of that, mm. of that um, kind of device of, you know, of players interacting with their universe. Another composer is also Scottish uh, called Lorne Balfe and Lorne told me recently that gamers can also turn the music off and choose their own music. Like, like, who's going to do that? Like, that's gutting, absolutely gutting. You spend all these hours slaving away, and then you just turn it off. The fun Alanis Morissette CD or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I love Take That as much as the next person, but I'm not sure it does quite the same sort of sonic justice to the, the game universe. The ultimate question is whether you do it again. Yeah, I would absolutely do another one of these kind of big open world, open universe, player versus environment mm. games. Um, I think the scope of it, the potential for music is is brilliant. Uh, no, was it was a shooting, basically a shooting game. There are basically two flavours of music in that. One is you're alive and one of them is you're dead. And within the living music, one is you're shooting someone and the other is you're not yet shooting someone. I wouldn't probably do that, but I don't think I would be asked to do that. It's not my kind of yeah. thing. Trying to write music that has a, a logic to it and has a consistency of sound and colour is, is a challenge that I think any composer is, is kind of striving for every day. It doesn't matter if it's for the concert hall or for the computer screen. Mm. Like it's, the, the challenge is exactly the same. We're nearing the end of this final podcast in the Ode to Joystick series. As we began in episode one with a celebration of 8-bit tunes, we loop full circle now and meet up with musician and songwriter Deerfall, who took up using the Game Boy to create music because, as she put it, it was simpler than the guitar. We have an original Nintendo Game Boy running uh, some software called Little Sound DJ or LSDJ. So I mostly use it live, um... And it kind of acts as a backing track mm. that I can either just play stuff back from or loop things and interact with. So what are the, what are the limit, limitations? It has four tracks, uh, which is the number of tracks that are available to any cartridge running on the Game Boy. Is now a good point to, can you demonstrate those four channels? Uh, yes. So this is this is pulse one. This is the first of the two pulse wave channels, and that I think is pretty much a perfect square wave. 
It's got a kind of fluty sort of sound. And there's other things that you can change, um, like the, the length of the envelope or the amount of vibrato on it. So essentially, because um, of the way that the Game Boy sound chip works, each of the four tracks can only play one note at a time. There's no way that you can play chords. It doesn't have the capacity or the brain to do that. You can get around that is that it's possible to program very fast arpeggios. So if you listen, you can hear the separate notes, but it's sort of your brain kind of makes it into a chord. And if you listen to pretty much any chiptune music or music made in LSDJ, you will hear this. So that is like lots of notes together. Yeah, lots of notes together. Um, I think it's a really clever way around it, actually. So in in this song, Pulse 1 set up as a kind of lead... And then I've got another track set up as the bass line, which is also using a pulse wave. This is voice two. And essentially, that's that's what you've got for melodic lines, unless you want to also use the wave channel, although I quite often use the wave channel for drums because I like the weird sampled drums that are on LSDJ. So I'll quite often, if I want to add chords, I'll add them as kind of in-between things, like the really fast arpeggio chords that we were talking about before. And a lot of people who use LSDJ will link two or more Game Boys together. There are people that you will see Mm. who use, like, a whole table full of Game Boys and other things as part of live sets. But I think part of what I like about it is the compactness and it is actually possible for me to play a full set with just a Game Boy and uh, so this is what the the wave track the drum track sounds like so for the the wave tracks you get you can have up to two sounds at once this is the only track that you can have some kind of polyphony on Um, but it's also possible to kind of hand draw in a sound wave instead of using the sample. I don't tend to do that quite as much. What I tend to do is just to use it as a kind of backup to the the kick drum in track three. Um, So I pretty much just have... So maybe we should hear all four voices together. Uh, Yes, so when you put everything together, you get a full song. Every 
I remember looking at the kind of official LSDJ manual the first time I ever used it and thinking, I'm never going to be able to learn this. I originally tried to learn it on an emulator on my phone, which is a touchscreen phone, and found that incredibly difficult. But when you've actually got the hardware, it's very much based on learning kind of combinations of button presses, and it becomes part of muscle memory very quickly, explained verbally. Mm. Um, so there's a really great introductory article on Synthtopia, which is a good starting point, I think, if you're interested in, in using LSDJ yourself. Um, and they describe the sort of structure of how everything's put together as LSDJ being a city, each note being a brick, each phrase being a wall, each chain being a building, and the song screen, which opens when you start the programme, being the city where all of the buildings get put together. So let's draw a few last conclusions and thoughts about the future of games music. Chris Abbott said... I think games music is trying too hard to be taken seriously and as a result of which a lot of it becomes game music desperately trying to be grown up and film like film music. I think he has a point. What seems important is that we don't lose a sense of fun and 8-bit melodies or maybe the music for mobile games will perhaps make sure we don't take gaming music too seriously. Composer Richard Jakes. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with the VR and AR technologies. Mobile gaming, I think, is just going to continue to grow. Pretty much everyone's got a games console in their pocket now. So that's something I didn't predict. And it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. The amount of players that are playing games online, either simultaneously or, or cooperatively, I think that's going to grow and grow. And that might have implications for how we do music. You know, if there's, if there's 100,000 people playing the same game at the same time, you know, do we do something? creatively different with the music for each player these kind of things how we store music is probably going to change and and how music delivered will we still have all these things uh, are just very speculative at the moment i think you know from from seeing so many generations of consoles come and go i i can pretty much bet i'm going to have more channels more storage to play with composer enon zur eventually i think that you could you would be able to see more and more games that the game will learn how you play, will learn your taste, and will adapt itself to you, and music will be part of it. And this is very, very revolutionary. So if you ask me, like, how, you know, where music, not style, but where music use is going to change, I think this is the direction right now that we will look at next. And finally, Thomas Quillfelt has a final prediction. People joke about video games having their Citizen Kane moment, about it being a kind of a young medium um, and not being as mature as, as cinema. And I think in that regard, we haven't, video games music hasn't quite had its uh, my heart will go on moment, you know, where a piece of music drawn from another medium resonates so strongly with the public that it becomes a kind of cultural moment in and of itself. Um, we've seen that time and time again with film, you know, like the, the bodyguard and wet, wet, wet with four weddings and funeral. And the, the strongest candidate possibly was uh, Austin Wintory's score for Journey, which a couple of years ago, I think 2012 or 2013, was nominated for a Grammy. Unfortunately, it didn't. It didn't win. It, it certainly kind of propelled video game music uh, up there with other sort of mainstream music icons so we're not i don't think we're quite there yet but it's probably just a matter of time before something something breaks through a a song from a popular game maybe gets into the charts or, or something like that really strikes a chord thanks to all the contributors to this final podcast and the others i've met and spoken to across the three-part series it's been an absolute blast and my ears have been recoded and compiled into a new way of thinking about gaming music I'm Ben Ashmaid. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAR, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Our energy is on its final bar. No power-ups in sight. So with a sigh of frustration, for now, it's game over. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.